Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight it is January it is January 9th of 2014. It's a whole new year upon us. And tonight our guest is uh, Michael Kuhar, Ph.D. from Emory University. Uh, he's a neuroscientist. He's written the book, uh, The Addicted Brain, and we'll be talking a lot about uh, addiction and its effects in the brain and how drugs affect the brain, tolerance, withdrawal, all those good things. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Dr. Michael Kuhar, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Michael? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, it's a really interesting book that goes into a lot of details about what goes on in the brain. And let's start by talking a little bit about neurotransmission and how are signals transmitted, what are neurotransmitters. Tell us some things about that. Sure. Well, um, the brain is really made up of chains of nerve cells, chains or circuits of nerve cells. And the nerve cells have to communicate with each other, and they communicate with each other by chemical signaling. Uh, that is to say that one neuron will secrete a chemical from its nerve ending onto the next cell. That cell gets stimulated and in turn releases a chemical onto the receptors of the next cell and so forth. So chemical signaling is what maintains communication in the brain among nerve cells. And it's obviously very, very critical. Um, it's, it's fundamental to how the brain works. And these chemical signals <clears throat> we call neurotransmitters because they transmit signals from one neuron to the other. Now, people have probably heard a lot about uh, things like dopamine and serotonin. You know, even if they watch the advertisements on TV for uh, Prozac, they will see things about serotonin. Um, do different uh, neurons have different uh, neurotransmitters associated with them? Oh, yes, absolutely. There are many different chemical signals in the brain, many different neurotransmitters, and that adds to the wonderful diversity uh, uh, in the brain and the possibility of many different kinds of signaling and talking, if you will, among nerve cells. Um, th the chemicals uh, are called neurotransmitters, as I said, and there are many of them. Uh, I, there may be a dozen or more, 20 or 30, depending on how you look at the evidence for them. But there are many neurotransmitters, and um, it's very important because not only addicting drugs, but therapeutic drugs, drugs that get you well, antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, and so forth, they all work through neurotransmitters. In fact, if you want to understand neuropharmacology, if you want to understand how drugs that affect the brain, drugs for mental illness, if you want to find out how they work, you have to understand neurotransmission. That's sort of the template upon which all of drug action is laid and studied. 
And so um, neurotransmission and the great multitude of neurotransmitters uh, is very important. And not only are there many neurotransmitters, but there are many different kinds of neurotransmitter receptors. Now, a receptor is the molecular site that a neurotransmitter has to bind to to signal. It's sort of like a button or a light switch that you have to push uh, to get the signal working, to get the light turned on. And if a drug can't get to its receptor, or if a neurotransmitter can't get to its receptor, then nothing happens. So we have many neurotransmitters, and some of the neurotransmitters have many receptors. So it is a wonderfully complex uh, system with many opportunities for developing um, medications, with wonderful opportunities for diversity, uh, with wonderful opportunities for plasticity, learning, et cetera, et cetera. It's a one, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about the brain. It's a, it's a marvelous organ. Now, uh, are neurotransmitters, are they uh, distributed equally throughout the brain, or are there certain areas that are more associated with one neurotransmitter than another? Yeah, no, they're not equally distributed. Um, uh, some neurotransmitters are found throughout many regions, like, for example, a chemical called glutamate or glutamic acid is the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, and that's found throughout many, many places. GABA or gamma-aminobutyric acid is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter, and that's found throughout the brain but tends to be found in higher concentrations in cortical regions, I think. So it's not everything's distributed here and there. Neurotransmitters are found in specific neurons, and therefore they are found in the projections of those neurons, wherever they go. If the nerve cell is in the brainstem and projects to the cerebral cortex, it will have its neurotransmitter in the cerebral cortex. And, of course, um, it's been discovered that a single neuron can have more than one neurotransmitter. A nerve cell can have multiple neurotransmitters. And um, uh, we think we understand what some of that is about. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about uh, drugs, alcohol, nicotine, um, and why do they work, and what is the importance of neurotransmitters in how they work? And I know this is very complicated because different drugs work in different ways, but I'll let you take your time. Okay. <clears throat> well, some general statements can be made. Um, and one general statement is that um, drugs, addicting drugs, work by altering chemical neurotransmission. That's a general statement. Almost all of them, or all of them, somehow work uh, on the process of neurotransmission by distorting it in some way. And they do it in many different ways. Uh, different drugs affect different neurotransmitters, but they all come down to affecting and changing the normal process of neurotransmission. And that's, um, that's sort of the key thing. Now, um, some drugs will 
prevent neurotransmission in certain circuits. Other drugs will enhance neurotransmission in certain circuits. And um, uh, that seems to be the way it is. Now, there are certain circuits in the brain that we call reward or feeling good circuits. And ultimately, the drugs that are addicting make us feel good. Somehow, ultimately, however, down the line, whatever, they, they affect these circuits. And dopamine is thought to be one of these compounds that is involved with pleasure at least some of the time. So um, um, that's, that's the general idea. We could talk about individual drugs if you want, but, but that's the general idea. Now, another key thing to say is that the process of neurotransmission is very fast. It occurs in a thousandth of a second. It's in a millisecond range. So normal neurotransmission is bam, bam, bam. It's a, it's a very brief signal or pulse. Now, when you take a drug, the drug in the brain lasts for a long time. It lasts maybe minutes to hours, even maybe days. And so neurotransmission is disturbed for a long, long time, much longer than um, a neurotransmitter would would have an effect. So um, addicting drugs affect neurotransmission, but they affect it in a completely different time frame. Uh, and the thing that determines the time frame is the user. How often does the user take the drug and how much does he take? But, um, but that's the general idea. Neurotransmission is there. It's in our brains. It's, it's all set up. Our brains are set up um, to, be, um, to be a receiver, to be affected by drugs. And in my book, I call the brain a co-conspirator in drug addiction. And I mean it, it's a co-conspirator because it's all set up with the way it works to, to, um, uh, to have drugs... Um, change it, affect it, and so forth. Okay, let's look at some specific examples. How does cocaine work? Okay, now cocaine and other stimulants like amphetamine and methamphetamine, um, they work, okay, again, at the synapse, and they affect synaptic transmission, and they affect synaptic transmission of dopamine, by prolonging the action of dopamine, prolonging its action. Normally, dopamine is released from one nerve ending onto the next cell and interacts with dopamine receptors. And then dopamine is removed from the synapse or from those receptors by being taken up by a pump, being taken up back into the nerve terminal that it was released from. So that's neurotransmission. Release of neurotransmitter, um, receptor, activation, and then removal. The three R's. Those three R's are what neurotransmission is all about. Now, when you put a drug in the mix, like cocaine, cocaine tends to block the removal. It blocks that pump that, um, that removes the dopamine from its receptors. And when you block the pump, 
dopamine builds up at those receptors. And so cocaine results in or causes a prolongation of dopaminergic neurotransmission. And presumably it is something that maybe never happens under normal conditions or maybe not in quite the same way. But um, uh, uh, so there's a, there's a very specific example of what cocaine does. And normally dopaminergic neurotransmission is very fast, but when you take cocaine, you can influence a single dose of cocaine can influence dopaminergic transmission for an hour, perhaps. And so the, um, the, the brain is plastic. You know, the brain, the brain has neuroplastic properties. It can change. Learning is an example of plasticity. Um, now, when you bombard the brain with drugs that batter neurotransmission, okay, that actually batter neurotransmission, um, the brain changes. The brain tries to adapt. And um, that adaptation is, in essence, the process of addiction or the process of, of habituation or becoming uh, dependent on the drug. Now, is, you mentioned the effect that cocaine has on dopamine. Is that similar to the effect that Prozac has on serotonin? It's, it's identical. Prozac inhibits the removal of serotonin from the receptors by blocking the pump. And now here's an example of, of an uptake inhibitor that has or that causes a, um, a therapeutic or beneficial effect. And um, it just turns out that addicting drugs affect certain areas of the brain or certain neurotransmitter systems that are involved in feeling good and so forth, and and it's it's sort of unlucky, but it's just an accident that that happens. Um, and you know, you, you know, you're not supposed to discontinue addicting drugs without going into withdrawal. And I'm pretty sure that um, doctors will say, do not abruptly discontinue taking Prozac, for example, because there may be mm-hmm. a kind of withdrawal, you know, sort of a swing towards a lot of anxiety. Um, but yes, as I said, the synapse is the, is the template that you have to use to understand how drugs work in the brain. I'm talking about addicting drugs and therapeutic drugs, drugs that have a, a beneficial effect. And you pointed out, too, co- cocaine um, doesn't have much of a beneficial effect. It causes addiction. And Prozac has a tremendously um, you know, positive effect. It's an antidepressant effect. And they work in general by the same way, but in different regions on different neurotransmitters. Well, it's interesting um, when we look at what's a beneficial effect and what's not. I'm going to bring us right to another drug right now, which is amphetamine, uh, which we know is prescribed for ADHD. And and we also know it's a drug of abuse. So um, as a matter of fact, I've I've read studies that said a lot of people that uh, have cocaine problems actually do have ADHD and they are actually self-medicating it. And it does actually have a positive effect on ADHD. So can can you talk a little bit about that? Um, Well, sure. Um, We know that... um, 
uh, stimulant drugs like, uh, like amphetamine improve symptoms of ADHD. Now, we don't know everything about ADHD and amphetamine and other drugs. I, I don't know um, whether the long-term data are all in, okay? I'm not sure about that, and I don't think we know everything. I think there are still some um, uh, unknown, uh, unknown, or not all of the questions have been answered. But yes, that's how it works in people with ADHD. You get a, you get a paradoxical effect. Normally, amphetamine is a stimulant, makes you move, want to move, um, makes you, your thoughts go faster, makes you feel more powerful, more confident. Um, but with people who have ADHD, amphetamine seems to settle them down. They don't move as much, and so they can pay attention better. So it's a paradoxical effect. There is something different about um, the brains of people with ADHD. And um, in terms of self-medicating, um, well, as you know, a, a prominent theory of drug addiction is that people self-medicate. People take mm -hmm. drugs to make themselves feel better, to, um, to counteract the effect of other drugs, and so forth. And, and related to that, a very important finding is that people who are abusing drugs, addicted to drugs, also have present a psychiatric or mental illness, a psychiatric disorder or mental illness. Like, for example, maybe people who smoke use the stimulant nicotine to raise them up out of a depression, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, you know that people use painkillers because they're in pain, and it's possible to become addicted to uh, uh, to opiate drugs. So self-medication is a key thing, and the comorbidity, the co-occurrence of another mental disorder is a salient and significant finding in drug addicts. Uh, and I think that supports the idea that many people are taking drugs to self-medicate um, for other reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I want to mention the fact um, uh, a couple of years ago we had Edward Kansian as a guest on the show. He's like the father of the self-medication hypothesis. So if anyone's interested, they can go back and listen to that episode. You know, I was reading some studies about schizophrenics and like schizophrenics, like 90% of schizophrenics are cigarette smokers. It seems that nicotine is very beneficial to schizophrenics. Um, I... That, that really isn't my area of expertise. I don't know if it's beneficial. Maybe it is. Uh, I just don't know what the data are on that point. Well, at least they seem to, to find it to be. Um, well, one of my projects I was always wanting to work on was to uh, see if we could introduce uh, schizophrenics to electronic cigarettes so that they wouldn't all be getting lung cancer from smoking these regular right. cigarettes. <laughs> right. Well, let's go well, you know, uh, I mean, schizophrenics um, uh, take anti-schizophrenic drugs, and as I understand it, those drugs can make them feel dysphoric, sort of feel funny. And maybe they smoke or take uh, other drugs to make them feel better. Anyway, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I did a little 
I did a research paper on nicotine for one of my classes. So, you know, schizophrenics, even when they're not taking the psych meds, they, they really like nicotine a lot. It seems to provide some symptomatic relief. But that's a whole other topic. So I'm going to ask you about opiates, because I know you wrote a lot about opiates in your book and their effect on neurotransmission. Right. Well, um, uh, opiate, you know, as we started out by saying that addicting drugs affect neurotransmission, and there are many neurotransmitters, many chemical substances normally found in the brain. And there are opiate substances that occur naturally, the endorphins, the encephalins. And opiate drugs stimulate the same receptors uh, that these natural substances stimulate. So opiate drugs mimic endogenous neurotransmitters. And um, basically, uh, that's, how they, uh, that's how they work. Um, the brain has evolved mechanisms to remove naturally occurring neurotransmitters from the receptors because the signal has to be brief. If it has to be on and off. If neurotransmission weren't on and off, if it were constant, then it wouldn't be a signal. It would just be noise. So neurotransmission has to be on-off, on-off, on-off. But when you put in an opiate drug like morphine, it's on, 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 on. It's a completely different kind of signal. The brain experiences a completely different kind of crosstalk, <clears throat> crosstalk among its nerve cells. And... Um, now, that crosstalk is definitely beneficial because it reduces pain. And without opiates, there are a lot of people who would be in very bad shape, and thank goodness for opiates, because they can reduce pain like that. Um, a side effect of opiate drugs is that they are addicting, cause dependence, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, um, well... So the the way that uh, say cocaine affects affects the neurotransmission, the way opiates affect it are quite different. Uh, cocaine uh, stops the reuptake of dopamine, or it stops it from getting out of the synapse, so it remains around. But uh, the opiates they mimic they mimic the natural neurotransmitters. Is that correct? Right. That's right. They actually stimulate the receptors themselves. So opiate drugs like morphine stimulate directly the endorphin and keflin receptors. Cocaine doesn't do anything to the receptors. Cocaine prevents the removal of dopamine, so dopamine builds up and stimulates the receptors in an excessive way. So with cocaine, it's dopamine that's naturally occurring dopamine that's stimulating the receptors. <coughs> but with opiates, it's the opiate drug that the addict has taken or that you know, someone has taken, and that's doing the receptor stimulation. It's a direct effect at the receptor. And what does alcohol do? How does that work? Well, as far as I know, there's a bunch of theories about how alcohol works. It's thought to affect GABA receptors and enhance neurotransmission through um, GABA, a, one of the neurotransmitters, gamma aminobutyric acid, GABA for short, and it'll affect some glutamate receptors. And, and there are some ideas that, it, that there's yet other ways that, ga- that alcohol influences the brain. Um, I think it's pretty clear that it affects 
you know, GABA and glutamate, but there may be other ways as, uh, as well. And so the mechanism with alcohol, that's, that's a third mechanism that's different from opiates or uh, cocaine, isn't it? Well, um, if you look at GABA receptors, what it's doing is it's binding to GABA receptors and enhancing GABAergic transmission. So yes, it's like an allo, what we call an allosteric modulator. It's somehow working at the receptor to make the receptor more effective. And yes, that's a, that is another way that, um, that's a yet another mechanism of um, receptor or neurotransmitter alteration, yeah. How about caffeine? Well, caffeine, uh, you know, seems to block this neurotransmitter adenosine, the receptors for adenosine. Um, and caffeine's an interesting substance, you know. I mean, some people say it's the, it's the uh, most used worldwide of all the psychoactive substances. Psychoactive meaning that it alters your behavior, your thinking, your, your mood. And so caffeine is around everywhere. Um, it is thought by many that caffeine does not represent a threat or a serious problem like other addicting substances. And so they kind of leave out caffeine when they talk about addiction. Um, but clearly you can have a caffeine disorder. You can take too much caffeine, which will leave you nervous and, you know, sort of a mess. Um, you can go into caffeine withdrawal, uh, which, gives, which is like a headache and a depression. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, there's another substance that is psychoactive, that affects the brain, affects our behavior, and um, can cause long-lasting changes in the brain, just like other substances. And I believe that DSM-4 uh, did not include caffeine dependence as a disorder. As far as I know, that's right. Um, and I believe the reason is generally that it was felt that caffeine was not as serious a problem as other substances, so it wasn't included. Now, you yeah. know, um, the DSM-4 didn't use the word addiction, and the DSM-5 doesn't use the word addiction or or dependence, it's, they call uh, in DSM-5, it's now called substance use disorder. <laughs> and, and substance use disorder simply means that something happens when you use the substance. You know, something is going wrong. So, um, uh, uh, and what's going wrong is that caffeine is altering our behavior by altering the brain. The brain is the organ of behavior. And if our behavior changes, you have to look to the brain to explain it. Mm -hmm. I haven't bought the DSM-5 yet, so I still have to get through that one. <laughs> uh, I was a little, you know, I'm very heavily addicted to caffeine, so me too. I would have me too. <laughs> so when I see that there's no caffeine dependence in the DSM-4, I'm kind of like, uh, wait a minute, I'm addicted to it, so don't tell me there's no caffeine. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, a definition of the word addiction means that is that you seek and take the substance in spite of negative consequences or personal distress in your life. Mm -hmm. if, if you're taking something and there's no negative consequences and personal distress, you know, there's no destructive effect, um, you know, um, 
then then it wouldn't fit what it wouldn't fit what I call the definition of addiction. You know, so um, sometimes people I'm addicted to this, I'm addicted to that, but officially. When I talk about addiction, it's only about substances or behaviors that are detrimental to your life, that have a negative impact on your life. If it doesn't have that, um, you know, it's okay. I mean, maybe caffeine, the big negative impact is that you leave a lot of money at Starbucks every year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the thing is, uh, you know, society has such impact on this. Now, if caffeine was treated like heroin... And if I had to pay $100 to get an ounce of instant coffee or, or a teaspoon of instant coffee on the street corner and I could be arrested and put in prison for this, you know, I could not stop my caffeine addiction right now. I would be as, as bad off as any heroin junkie out there. You know? Oh, you wouldn't feel very well. I'm not sure you'd be as bad as a heroin junkie, um, but I think, yeah, you'd have a lot of symptoms, sure. Well, I don't think I would be stopping. I think I'd be out there in the street corner trying to score from the dealer. <laughs> and I might wind up in prison, you know, for this. Um, well, yeah, that's one of the interesting things in the DSM-5. I, I've, I've read some reviews of it, so I saw that they were actually removing uh, the criminal sanctions as one of the criteria because they said that this is society-dependent and it's not objective and scientific. Um, I'm not familiar with that, but that may very well be true. Yeah, I think that's something I read. And, you know, in the DSM-4, they they still do really count that as, well, that's one of your symptoms of abuse is if you get in trouble with the law for your substance use. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about withdrawal um, and tolerance and how do these work? Yeah. Well, um, we can talk about tolerance first. So tolerance is the effect or the process which is manifested by the fact that you have to take more drug to get the same effect. So you become tolerant to the drug and you need to take more and more to get the same experience. Now, there, as far as I know, Uh, There is no single mechanism of tolerance. Most people would say there are tolerances or different mechanisms of tolerance. And the mechanisms of tolerance could include changes in metabolism of the drug so that less gets to the brain. It could include changes in the sensitivity of the receptors so that when the drug gets to the brain and to the receptors, it doesn't have as, as great an effect. It could be a change in the number of receptors that are there so that, a little, so that the result of receptor stimulation is changed. So there, there could be many different ways that tolerance is caused. Now, um, withdrawal, uh, withdrawal is, uh, as probably everybody knows, um, the development of symptoms when you stop taking a substance. And generally, the symptoms are opposite to those that the drug causes. Like, for example, um, cocaine is a psychostimulant. It makes you feel energetic and up. And when you go into withdrawal from cocaine, you tend to feel depressed and down. So the withdrawal symptoms tend to be opposite. And um, uh, if we go back 
to the idea of the synapse and how the drugs batter the synapse. They batter the brain because their action is much, much longer and persistent than normal neurotransmitters. The brain changes. The brain adapts. Uh, the brain adapts because it's neuroplastic, and thank goodness it is. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to learn a thing. <laughs> um, so th the brain has mechanisms to change and respond to the environment. And um, uh, changing the chemical makeup and the way the neurons respond and the chemical uh, makeup of the, of the nerve cells changes when um, we take a drug for a long time. For example... If you took human brains at autopsy and did chemical assays in the brains of addicts and chemical assays in the brains of normal people, you would find that the brains of addicts are different. They are chemically different. They're actually physically and chemically different. And um, somehow that is what tolerance is all about that's the that's the base that somewhere in there is the explanation for tolerance somewhere in there is the explanation for withdrawal um, uh, it all has to do with the fact that drugs change the brain the brain shifts it shifts to deal with this with its new reality of drugs and when it shifts and you stop taking drugs then it's stuck over in a shifted place and has to shift back. And the shifting back is what we experience as withdrawal. Oh, maybe I can say more about that or say in a different way. The brain, you know, well, you have, say, alcohol is relaxing you, but it's relaxing you too much. So the brain is trying to compensate for that by you know, becoming more excited. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Sure, the brain does try and compensate. So I think that, you know, in evolution, our brain is set within a certain window, sort of, to function within a certain window. We can see certain quantities of light. We can hear certain sounds. We have certain windows of sensation. And when when drugs or injuries or whatever change those windows, the brain wants to reset those windows. It wants to go back, and which is one of the wonder, wonders and marvels of the brain, actually. Um, and it is an abuse of that capacity by drugs that causes these problems of tolerance and withdrawal. Now, when we're talking about neuro, neuroplasticity, um, I want to talk a little bit about people that stop using drugs. Um, you know, people that recover from their, their drug use, their, their problematic drug, drug use. And uh, does neuroplasticity kick in again? Do people start to, you know, forget about drug use? Do they, do they start to go back to where they were before they became drug users? Well, um, as you know, many people can walk away from drugs, and yes, it's a relearning. Um, the relearning re and new learning is involved in becoming abstinent. Um, you learn new, you find new rewards, you learn new habits and behaviors. Yeah, so neuroplasticity and learning is involved in healing and becoming well and becoming abstinent from drugs. Yeah, it's one of those things, you know, I got told in treatment when I was going through uh, treatment for alcohol many years ago, 
uh, and they were like, you know, well, you'll always be you'll always be an alcoholic, you'll always be addicted, and you'll always be preoccupied with this substance, and you'll never be normal again because, and you know, they were giving me all, all this crap, which I really think is really crap for most people. Um, you know, since then I a, have, yeah, this was a twelve-step yeah. program. Um, one of them was 12-step, and one of them was mixed 12-step and some cognitive okay. behavioral mixed in. But they were still both uh, had a very heavy 12-step influence. So they were kind of like, you know, this will be forever. But, you know, my experience, um, well, I stopped smoking completely. And after about a year, I don't think about cigarettes anymore. But I do have a cigar on a rare occasion, but, you know, for me, cigars and cigarettes are totally different. And actually, that's something I want to talk about in a minute. But And, you know, for alcohol, I stopped drinking heavily like I was. I went to drinking once a week instead of, you know, four days a week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me now, it's like there's no – I don't want to drink four days a week. I don't really think about alcohol. I don't think about cigarettes at all. Uh, they're kind of gone. It's like, you know – I, I'm not preoccupied with them anymore. During the first year of my change on both of these, certainly it was a big fight, and they were uh, really in my mind a lot because I think my brain was still in that place. But it it changed. Right. right. Definitely. I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It changed. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, different. there's different kinds of treatment, and... um we don't know everything, you know. We don't know everything about the brain and so forth. Uh, and so there's some models of treatment that some people would say are extreme in one way or another, but, you know, they do their best. The 12-step program says that you're an alcoholic forever. Um, whether that's true or not or in what sense it's true or in what degree it's true may vary, and you know, depending on the person. Um, but the 12-step program... For those who complete it, um, it, it has a pretty decent record. Now, I think that raises another interesting question, you know, about drugs. Some people feel that when you take a drug, your brain is changed forever. Mm-hmm. Now, um, some people think that. I personally don't think it for the same reason that you just mentioned. I used to smoke and then stopped. And the year and a half that after smoking, I felt, I craved cigarettes. I thought about it a lot. However, after that, I don't crave them at all. So I would say that if my brain was changed forever by the cigarettes, it wasn't changed in a significant way because I don't have any attachment to that now. You know? And, mm-hmm. and what you're saying is, is, is the same thing. I'm verifying and agreeing with you with what you said. Um, so, yes, we change, we learn new things, and I believe that the distortions caused by drugs heal and go away. It may take a long, long time, but in me, it went away. Maybe, maybe there are some people where they don't go away, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. These things remain to be worked out. Well, it's quite possible. I mean, there's there seems to be some evidence to support that from, uh, well, at least anecdotal evidence to support that because some people are still reporting after they haven't smoked for 20 years that they still think about cigarettes. So I, I see that anecdotally. It's not it's, Anecdotes are not scientific evidence, of course, but they give us a springboard to start doing scientific investigations from. 
Right, right. They're a source, yeah. Anecdotal data is a source for new ideas, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, what was I going to say? Oh, in our program, our program, we, we really don't concentrate so much on telling people, you know, that you can't drink again. Or, well, we don't tell people what they should do. We tell people, make your own choice. What is going to work best for you? Is quitting alcohol going to work best for you? Quitting completely. Or is cutting back working going to work best for you? Have you been unable to stop, but can you be safer? You know, what are you ready and able to do, and what is your best solution as an individual? So we really ask people, you know, to find their own best individual solution rather than trying to tell them, you know, you're an alcoholic, you can never drink again. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I'm not we a have treatment a lot of person. Yeah, I'm not a treatment person. Um, I've paid attention to it, uh, so I don't know a lot about the latest studies in treatment, and I, you know, d won't necessarily comment about those things. Okay, okay. I'll just say that we've had a lot of people that have not done well necessarily with the more traditional approaches that uh, really make a lot of progress uh, with our approach because uh, we respect their right to make their own decisions, and. So let's go on to another topic now, which was related to what we were just talking about, because I said I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. I have a cigar now and then, which, of course, you don't inhale. You just kind of absorb through the mucous membranes. It's very different. And you talked in your book something about route of ingestion and the difference in how rapidly the drug, uh, the concentration of the drug rises in the brain. And tell us a little bit right. about that. Well, um, you know, I think that the sensory systems of a human being, our visual system, our hearing system, um, our other senses, our senses are geared to detect rapid changes. For example, you can stare at a, at a, at a forest and you won't see the squirrel until it moves. Or you can be at a party and you don't hear the music until it stops or until the song changes. So we're geared to detect changes. At least partly that's the way it works. Now, mm -hmm. we have another sensory system, which is feeling good. And when you take a drug, uh, it stimulates the feeling good sensory system. And when do you really notice a drug? You notice it when you get a rush or a rapid change in the sensation. And so I think the rapidity of uh, the change or the change in sensation creates a greater awareness of it. Uh, and some people call that salience. Um, and that is a big factor. That's a big factor in, in drug addiction. Drugs that are um, smoked or injected are thought, or forms of a drug, I mean, let's take cocaine. I think studies show that injected cocaine um, uh, can become more of a problem than, than snorted cocaine or, or orally or oral cocaine. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, the root of or the, the change in the brain, the faster it gets in the brain, the faster you have that sensation in the brain, uh, the, more the more aware you are of this drug and the more aware you are of the feelings that it's producing. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wonder, I wonder too, if it's, you know, if the brain has less time to compensate 
for the presence of the drug, you know, when the concentration rises rapidly, because, you know, we know that the brain is constantly compensating, you know, when the, when the drug right. comes in, it's trying to function more normally again, so it's fighting back for normal function. Right. Well, um, that may be also, yeah, I... I um, uh, that's a very reasonable suggestion. Mm-hmm. That it's the it's too fast for the compensation. Um, yeah, that could be very could very well be part of it. So, and we see this a lot with alcohol too, since that's what our show is about or what our program is about. You know, mm-hmm. there, there seem to be more problems associated with distilled spirits than with beer even or wine or non-distilled because you know you can you can get a i mean it's possible to chug beer really fast but unless you're in college in some frat party most people (laughs) don't do that right uh but they people tend to drink spirits more quickly than they do these uh than they do wine or uh non-distilled spirits uh, non-distilled alcohol right Mm -hmm. so you know people get in bigger problems with the distilled alcohol yes well you know Mm -hmm. Well, it's, yeah. it's been shown historically a lot. When uh, gin was introduced in Britain, they had a gin epidemic. When distilled alcohol came to the United States, you know, the American Indians had beer, but the uh, distilled alcohol caused a lot of problems because they weren't uh, yeah. ready for it. Yeah. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one last thing let's talk about a little bit about is there a difference between recreational drug use and addictive drug use? And, you know, what, what should we, you know, should we be opposed to recreational drug use? Our, our government certainly is opposed to any recreational drug use. So what do you think about this? Well, um, so what's the difference? Well, um, addictive use means that you're seeking and taking a substance, even though it's having a negative impact on your life. It means you may be spending money to getting the substance instead of buying food for the children or paying the rent. It's having a negative impact on your li- your personal life, maybe your relatives, your society, and so forth. If you're taking a substance and it's not having that effect, then I wouldn't call it addicting and it wouldn't seem to be um, much of a problem. Um, so, so uh, yeah, I think there's a difference between you know, what, how you would define recreational drug use and addictive drug use. Um, now, what was your last question? What, um, well, it's our government's reaction to this, because our government doesn't really say to people, uh, oh, you use heroin, but you're not addicted, so that's okay. Or you use cocaine, you're not addicted, that's okay. Uh, they say, no, you're using an illegal drug. You either go to prison yeah. or you go to treatment. You know, yeah. and if you're not addicted, well, well, why would you need Mm-hmm. Well, the, a, a sort of commandment in our field um, or, or a major idea in our field is that um, uh, as drugs are more, if drugs are more available, there's going to be more people in trouble. So mm-hmm. um, legalizing drugs, the idea would be that you're going to have more people in trouble because, um, because drugs are more available. And certainly... If you look at alcohol and nicotine, which are legal and um, therefore very available, there's a lot more users and believed to be a lot more people dependent on alcohol and nicotine than there are on other substances. Um, So that's the the thing that my colleagues talk about. If drugs are more available, there's going to be more trouble 
more people will become mm. addicted, they'll get hurt, and public, it's from a public health perspective, we're going to have more trouble. So um, now, has that been shown all the time in every case? I'm not sure. Um, we'll have to see what happens in Colorado and Washington, uh, this, you know, Washington State, to see mm-hmm. what happens. Is is recreational marijuana use going to increase the number of marijuana-related accidents on the highway or, or marijuana-related injuries in the home or whatever? Uh, we'll have to wait and see how that turns out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my colleagues in harm reduction like to cite Portugal, which has now for over 10 years decriminalized all drugs. Yes. And they've seen a drop in drug use. They, there's less drug use than there was when they were illegal, and there's certainly far less drug-related arrests, and many of the problems have uh, decreased. Well, I have heard that as well. Now, <coughs> excuse me. I haven't looked at the data, and I haven't sort of really studied how this, you know, how the data were extracted, compiled, and analyzed, and so forth. But let's just say that that would be a wonderful, wonderful result. That would be very nice. Because um, in this country, we have more people in jail related to drug use than in the rest of the world, you know. So it would be nice if we could find um, a moralistic and justifiable way to, um, to reduce criminal penalties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know for myself personally, uh, if you legalized cocaine and heroin tomorrow, I wouldn't go out and buy either one. I don't want to, I don't want to use either one. As I said, I'm already addicted to coffee. So <laughs> you have all you need with coffee. Yeah. Between coffee, between some alcohol once a week, maybe once in a while I have a cigar. I mean, I've got enough drugs in my life already. I don't. I don't want to. I never wanted to mess around with opiates or cocaine because you know. That Me neither. I, yeah. Me neither. I recognize that there's more of an addictive potential there, and I just don't need that in my life. And, and I think right. a lot of people that are that way. And you know, when these politicians say, "Well, if it was legal, everyone would do it," I'd say, "Well, if it was legal, would you do it? Would you? Is that your first thing you would do? Is go out and buy heroin if it was legal?" I don't think, you, Mr. Congressman, I don't think yeah. that's what you would do. Right. Uh, well, it's not everyone, but certainly more people could do it. And the data from Portugal, we'll just have to see uh, how this all, you know, we are, now, um, we are now challenging the commandments. You know, we're challenging these ideas by getting data and um, evidence-based thinking, evidence-based uh, lawmaking, evidence-based treatment. This is where we're going. This is where we've been going, uh, and this is going to be a very, very good thing. Well, I think there's a good place to come to a close on because more data, more evidence is always a really good thing. So I would like to thank you for being our guest this evening, Michael Kuhar. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I think we covered a lot of really good things. Okay, it was a great show, everybody. We'll see you next week, so good night.